0: one basic hip Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by allaboutjazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads and more. Every episode of the show is also available for free at the and in iTunes. Recently, I played for you an interview with Seth Abramson, who books the music at Jazz Standard in New York City. And this is another in that series. This is with Spike Wilner, one of the powers behind Smalls Jazz Club. One of the things I really like about Smalls is that in addition to the actual venue itself, they also webcast their concerts so that you can watch them live while they're actually happening from the comfort of your own home, which for me is great because um, I can't make it to Smalls all that many times during the year, but there's always tons of great music there that I want to see. And so uh, I'm often on my couch, uh, headphones on, laptop in hand, and watching uh, some of the stuff that's happening at, at one of the more intimate jazz venues in New York. Uh, so with no further ado, a conversation with Spike Wilner from Smalls Jazz Club. My guest is Spike Wilner. He's a pianist and uh, one of the the Co-geniuses behind the Smalls Jazz Club, which uh, is really known among musicians as the Hang. It's a it's a real pleasure to have you on the show, and thanks for taking the time. Thank you, my pleasure to be here. Can we talk a little bit about uh, many people who've been on the Jazz Session over the years have talked about Smalls as a place where musicians come to see other musicians. Uh, certainly, the public comes as well, but it's a place where people know they're kind of going to see the best of what's happening in New York, and that's really been part of the philosophy since the beginning. Can you talk a little bit about Smalls and its its history and place in New York?
1: Yeah, well. Uh, I should say the real uh, genius behind this club is a man named Mitchell Borden, who created the club back in 94. We're celebrating our 15th year anniversary. Mitch is a uh, musician himself, but also just a kind of a uh, very sympathetic and uh, compassionate character who has essentially dedicated himself to cultivating jazz artists in the city. Uh, The original Smalls was this space that we're in, but it was a little bit more raw and uh, there was nothing in it in terms of anything for sale. We didn't have a bar. Um, it was just an open space. He charged a $10 cover to come in, and you could just stay as long as you wanted. You could bring your own beer or whatever. And so it became very popular with uh, young people, college students, because they could stay literally all night. And, and the musicians started to congregate here also because of the fact that it was without restrictions. In other words, you you, you played, you hung. And it, it was since there was no liquor license, it was a 24-7 kind of situation that just kind of became a culture unto itself after a number of years. Um, Mitch had a really good ear for some of the young talent that was coming up at that time, and he'd essentially choose artists that he would give residences to in order to cultivate them. I happened to be one of the guys that he believed in at the time. I don't even know why, but he heard something in my playing and I I had a steady gig down here that started on uh two in the morning on Tuesday it was 2 to 6 that was my slot um but uh you know a lot of the names that we now uh you know are now famous from our current scene were also part of that you know Kurt Rosenwinkel uh, Brad meldow was here Chris Potter uh, Omer Avital Jason Linder um Ari Roland Chris Byers Grant Stewart Joe Magnarelli Ned Gould Sasha Perry List goes on and on and on. Guillermo Klein. A lot of these guys got the chance to uh, have a steady uh, situation where they could explore their music. A lot of them were just young guys growing, like I was at the time. You know, in their early twenties and just still really just starting out. So we kind of to, got to cut our teeth here. And uh, Mitch really just didn't <coughs> have any kind of uh, administrative policy. In other words, there wasn't any real rules. Uh, And it it was really kind of a free-for-all, but the uh, atmosphere was kind of uh, like a cesspool that fermented uh, this bacteria that grew violently, (laughs) and uh, it became, you know, it became, eventually it became impossible. The situation became impossible for a number of reasons. It became impossible because there was no revenue, so to speak, except for the $10 cover. We weren't selling anything, so... He was really losing money most of the time. I mean, he, especially in the first few years, he bankrolled everything. Eventually, I think he started to break even a bit and even made a little money. But uh, the other thing was that this space originally had a very inexpensive rent. And then after, say, September 11th, the the rent became unmanageable at the current business model. Uh, So basically what happened was Mitch went bankrupt. I mean, you know, there was other issues like uh, fire codes and stuff. Like it wasn't, you know, there was a lot of problems with the space um he closed his doors in 2003 hoping to start something similar at fat cat which is a pool hall around the corner which he actually got going for a while there um and then this space fell into some other restaurateurs' hands who kind of came in and did renovative work uh new bathrooms the new bar got the liquor license uh which was really important father grandfathered in and then uh uh, in what I was saying was that the uh, another guy came in and put in the work to make the space. His intention was to have a different bar altogether. Uh, but what happened was once he opened his new bar, no one was coming at all. Anytime anyone showed up, it was because it, they thought it was Smalls. He eventually contacted Mitch and said, Look, you know, why don't we reopen Smalls? I'll let you manage it. I'll own it, which Mitch did. Smalls kind of reopened. and But this guy... Uh, didn't really have a sense of what he had. He wasn't a jazz person. He didn't understand that Smalls had become kind of an iconic place. He certainly didn't know about the musicians, and he wasn't pleased with the revenue level that was coming in. So uh, he looked to sell the business, and that's when uh, Mitch talked to me and also my partner, Lee Kostrinsky, who's also another musician and a published author, poet. And uh, we decided to... uh, Put some money together and buy the business back with Mitch, and uh, that took place in 2007. And since that time, we've just our goal has been to essentially restore the club to its original luster in terms of the spirit of the place, and then also to kind of even push it beyond what Mitch had done in that first part, which was also to you know just make it more comprehensive in the booking policy, uh, and also just with our current website, have something kind of cutting edge with. You know, our archive and our live video and stuff to just kind of show to the world what's happening down here because it's, it's so much incredible music that gets played here every single night of the week. So, and uh, you know, as a professional musician, I'm in a good position to uh, make things happen because I have connections with everybody that's already playing. They all know me as a professional and as a friend. And uh, I also, I think, i am keenly aware of the importance of the work that's being done down here. So it's kind of my passion to make sure that it gets. Uh, disseminated and uh,
0: continued. How do you guys strike a balance between the kind of free-form, cutting-edge approach and the fact that you actually have to keep the doors open by bringing revenue in? Well, I think
1: the number one attitude is that we can't, you can't, it's an anti-business. You know, uh, you know Mitch Borden is a religious man, and I be, by me, what I mean by that is not necessarily uh, reverent, but uh, kind of a spiritualist. And uh, he approaches everything he does from a very uh, almost Buddhist-like character. And uh, I'm extremely amenable to that same philosophy, and so is Lee for that matter. So our goal becomes not earning money, but just creating something that we feel is important for society, for music, for jazz. Um, So once you take the pressure of earning money out of the equation, then you have a lot more leeway to create things. It's not to say that we don't, want to earn money and I'm a practical man I mean you know I try to we we pay our bills every month and we pay the musicians their salaries and everything is on the books and clear but uh, you know the profit margin is not very large it's a very small revenue and uh, it doesn't really bother me I should say I don't know I can't speak for the other guys but for me you know I've been a professional jazz musician 23 years so I'm used to not making any money you know it's normal so you know I think that for a normal businessman the kind of revenue that we have down here would be unacceptable, like the guy that used to own it before us. Uh, but for us, from my perspective, the the rewards, the spiritual rewards are so extreme that it is worthwhile. And, and in my case, for example, I play here every week or a few times a week with my own band. I also get to see my heroes play here and, and facilitate that music that I've spent my whole life doing. So the rewards for me are just, you know, I don't even think about the money, to be quite honest. It never really occurs to me that much. I don't care. I don't think Mitch cares either, and I think Lee doesn't care. I mean, it's it's really just it's just about making something that we feel is important. You know, we believe in New York City. We believe in uh, a place where you can stay open late. I mean, you know what happened in New York? You know, staying open till four in the morning every night used to be all over the place. You know, now we're like the last last man standing. You know, everyone in bed by midnight. So, it's kind of a political statement, you know. But most importantly, it's just a place for artists and musicians and uh free-thinking people and night owls and and just non-conformists to come and experience something that's real you know that's
0: that's where we're at gene ludwig was on the show the hammond organist a few weeks ago Mm -hmm. and he was talking about uh, when he first came to new york and uh you know his experiences of starting gigs at three o'clock in the morning and playing the breakfast show and that kind of thing and uh you know he's uh, a guy uh, you know in his uh, his senior years certainly, and it seems like a lot of the younger musicians, people who are coming up now, don't really get a chance to experience what that scene was like. Maybe except here at Smalls. Is it important to provide that? So pe- for people? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm. I mean, I'm
1: 43. I just turned 43 last week, and uh, I started playing when I was about 19. So I was in New York City back in the late 80s, and I think that I and, and my generation guys, and my generation includes guys like. Peter Bernstein, Brad Meldal, Larry Goldings—we're all the same generation. Joe Farnsworth, Eric Alexander—we all kind of came up together. We—I think we're the the last generation to experience the last vestiges of the old New York jazz scene. In the sense that I still remember a time when there was 30 jazz clubs advertised in the Village Voice. You know that uh, you could go to Bradley's and the show started at one. You know you could go to the Village Gate and hang out all day and night there, listening to. You know I got to hear. uh, You know Art Blakey. Milt Jackson, uh, Tommy Flanagan. You know, I saw these guys. Um, so that has been eroded considerably by a lot of factors. Uh, I'd say mostly economic, really, because it it, it is so expensive and difficult to, to to run a place. You know, I mean, the I think the thing with Smalls too is that it has a kind of uh, modern philosophy on running a jazz club, which is which is very important, which is. Uh, You know, the old model of jazz clubs, I think, is something that's becoming more and more archaic, which is to say, like, tables and waiters and people coming in for a show, and after the show's over, leaving, the old nightclub scene is kind of faded. And uh, one of the things, I think, that Mitch has done, which has made it current, is to create more of a relaxed, informal atmosphere where people can feel like they're in someone's living room. It's not too expensive, and they can just take the time to just sit down, relax. There's no pressure to buy a drink. There's no pressure to leave if you have to. And uh, we've had success with that model. You know, I think it's it's proven successful. There he is. Who's here? You can interview him, the man himself. Oh, there you go. Hey. Hi. Mitch, we're doing an interview. We're just talking about you. Anyway, I mean, I'm very interested. You know, the thing is that within what I was that model, you know, Mitch transported it pretty uh, effectively over to Fat Cat during the time the that yeah, I was actually work, working as a jazz club. Um, and I'm, I'm very curious to see if it could be even done somewhere else. I mean, I kind of have interest in even opening another spot sometime in the future if I could put together the finances and just see if we can make something like this work. I, I really am of the philosophy that the more jazz clubs you have, the better. It's not really competitive as much as just, like, you know, complementary.
0: Well, and everybody talks about the fact that it's so hard to find places to play and not just not just places to play but places to kind of work things out places yeah. with a crowd where you can try out your new material where you know you don't have exactly. to just be playing the stuff that people paid 95 and expect to hear yeah
1: i mean you know what's been interesting for me is the experiences uh, like i said uh i'm in a unique position because of my status as a professional musician and i think that because i do get uh, a certain degree of respect from the cats you know uh, a certain street credibility um and I've done a few things here, which is really interesting. For example, I've, we've done this online archive of all the gigs. I've been, Ever since we started it, I took over. I've recorded every single set that's been played here and cataloged who was on it and, you know, the date, et cetera. And so now we've put it online on our website. So you can research a musician by his instrument and then just literally see what dates he's played at Smalls, either as a leader or a sideman, and, and hear the audio of it. Um, but before I—that took me a lot of work to get it together. But one of the final pieces in that puzzle was to get permission from the musicians themselves to put their audio up online. Because you know you can't just record somebody and put it online. Um, so I went through the trouble of trying to contact everyone that I could. I mean, I, I, I there was a few instances where I missed some guys, but for the most part, I tried to be as diligent as c- I could to get information and uh, permissions. And the response that I got was overwhelmingly supportive and positive. I would say, you know, 90, 98% of the guys were just totally into it. And uh, the same thing happens when we book the, the club, which is that I find that we can get great, great artists down here to play and pay them fees that are well below what they deserve. And I, I don't say that proudly because it's not something that we're proud of, but it's not that we're trying to uh, take advantage of anyone financially, but that the, the people that come in here understand the c- the circumstance. They know that there's only X amount. Of, well, you know, we have whatever, our, our legal capacity, 47 seats, or maybe 60 people with standing room, and we keep our cover charge very cheap, and we don't turn the house. So there's a, there's a limitation to how much money can actually be earned. We have three bands a night. So what happens is the musicians that come in, I think, come in with the idea that uh, they're supporting the club by playing here. Especially the more famous ones, they understand that, first of all, the experience of playing here is very positive for them because it's really a listening crowd. It's a very sophisticated crowd. They're not talking. They're, they're really keyed in on you. And so as an artist, it's a very gratifying performance experience to be here as opposed to, say, in other places where I've performed. You know, It's very low-key. And so I think what happens is we get guys like, for example, like Kurt Rosenwinkel, you know, he'll if he's in town, he might call and say, "Hey, can I come in and do a date?" And uh, you know, he'll what we'll pay him will be you know a, a fraction of sure what his fee is normally if he goes to Europe or that kind of thing. But for Kurt, he feels a sense of being at home when he's here because of his roots here, and also for him, it's like you know, I think he plays big festivals where they're very impersonal, maybe huge concerts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And here, he comes in and he hangs all his friends are at the bar. He can go in the back and have a cigarette or. You know, just hang out late. It's, 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 it's so, so it means a lot to them so that the, the fee involved in being paid is, is almost like it's like an honorarium more than, say, actually trying to make some money down here. So what I've experienced in this last couple of years is this sense of uh, cooperation from all the musicians to, to try to make something happen here and it's been really a it's a beautiful thing I think every most I would say not everyone but nearly everyone is is really on board with with just kind of making something happen here you know and I think that that also makes small stand out from that it, it's really a family business down here you know uh between Mitch and myself and Lee and and our our staff that we have working and then the musicians it's it it's really not like I said it's an anti-business it's it's more of a family model and uh people respond to that warmth and i think the 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 customers that come in here even people that have never been here before respond to the warmth of this room because they come in they feel comfortable they don't you know and so i think that's that's what we go on and i think that's the philosophy that you have to kind of take forward into any club i i I think if i was to try to create another club i wouldn't do it any other way than this just try to keep it as, as relaxed and as uh simple as possible
0: it's such an interesting space too, because the I mean the people who are in the front row are like a f- two feet from the pianist and five feet at most from the stage. That's right. The whole place is really geared toward listening, as opposed to geared toward big pin spots and uh, you know ninety five dollars a ticket. That's right. I mean we had last week we had Joe Martin, bassist, come in,
1: and he brought with him uh, Chris Potter and Brad Meldow for his quartet, and Marcus Gilmore on drums. You know, you're talking about really like the top names in jazz today as far as draw and as far as uh, stature and uh, you know they come in because first of all they love Joe, they love Smalls they know me, I mean I, Brad and I grew up together essentially and, and Chris and I went to college together and it's it's so it's just this kind of reunion of sorts but what's wonderful is, is like you know it's like you said, I've got people sitting all around behind Brad or right, right up in the stage. And so he, th- these are people that, that have the opportunity to be so close to this guy, to see him so closely, you know. And it's, uh, it's an experience you'll never get anywhere else in the world, I'm sure, with, especially with that.
0: Are there some moments uh, that you've experienced here at Smalls that really stand out for you, some, some nights you remember that were particularly special?
1: Uh, you know, we did a uh, – this was when Dennis Aron was, was very ill, um, great bass player, Dennis Irwin, who was our friend and uh, somebody that we love very much, and uh, when we found out how ill he was, we decided to do a benefit for him, and uh, we organized the thing. It was very informal, but we put the word out there was going to be a benefit for Dennis, and we essentially just put a big box at the door, and we just said, put in whatever, you know, there was a slot, We, you know, whatever you want to put in, put in. For Dennis, it's all going to go to Dennis. There's no questions about it. No one's, where no one's making any money here. Everything's going to Dennis. The turnout was incredible. I mean, it was just like we started around six and it went till four in the morning and it was just a non-stop parade of every musician. You, I mean, the love for Dennis Rome was was immense. And the support of the community was incredible. And you know, we had Joe Lovano down here, and Tardo Hammer, and Charles Davis, and just you know, luminaries. Everyone playing, everyone performing, everyone saying a few words. And then, uh, you know, it just went on and on. It was you know, packed, couldn't get in the door, you know, kind of thing. And then uh, I think we ended up pulling in like twenty grand. It was it was like an incredible amount of money, like that we just gave. We ended up giving it to his son, Mike Irwin. Um, it just expressed to me so so vividly the, the real tight knit nature of our jazz community and, and when it's time for people to come together there's still that spirit. I remember when I was a kid I used to go to the to the church, the the jazz church, you know, St. Peter's up there and, and I and I was also a student of Barry Harris's at his Jazz Cultural Theater. So for me the the idea of a community, the jazz community has been instilled to in me when I was very young and it's something I, I value a great deal because I still feel it. And I know that the older musicians know what I'm talking about. Some of the younger guys never have gotten the chance to really experience that, which is just the sense of that—a brotherhood of musicians. But that still exists, you know. And like I said, in special occasions, it, it comes up. You know, that that was a moment that that really was moving and uh, quite amazing. I have to say.
0: Well, it it seems like uh, since the relaunch, I mean, you guys have hit it exactly on the on the right note. I mean, you found a way to make the place both viable. And uh, kind of spiritually satisfying to to build that sense of community. We're trying our best, you know. I mean,
1: I'm kind of. Uh, I feel like it's desperate times, you know. I've put a lot of stock in the internet now because I think it's really the key for us is to go virtual. So uh, we spent a long time developing this website. Um, we put every musician that's played here in our database with their bios, their photos, their own personal websites and links. There's over 900 guys in that web in that in the uh, Database. Give and, folks the address too. Uh, www.smallsjazzclub.com. Great. Um, and you can always reach me, spike at smallsjazzclub.com by email. I love getting emails from people. And then the audio archive, you know, we have over 1,500 recordings now in there and growing. You know, each month we update it with uh, the artists that want to participate by posting their audio and then the live video feed which has been amazing because we've been getting people all over the world watching our shows now for free right on the site you know and i've been getting emails from people in poland and there's a group of kids that stay up in germany they stay up till you know four in the morning so they can watch a show you know and that kind of thing it's been very cool you know and i i'm hoping that just by raising the awareness of the club through the internet that we can continue to generate an audience down here i'm kind of you know, I, I think that the Internet is the key. I'm also, uh, in conjunction with that, starting a record label that I'm calling Smalls Live, which is going to be, which is already, in fact, uh, live recorded performances from the club, high quality, high audio. Um, we've got a, a few really great projects already in the can, including uh, a Kevin Hayes trio with uh, Bill Stewart and uh, a Dave Kakowski trio. We have Peter Bernstein with Jimmy Cobb. We have Steve Davis with uh, Larry Willis. We're going to be doing a a project coming up in the summer with uh, Neil Smith, with Mulgrew Miller, Eric Alexander, and Steve Wilson. So I'm trying to just take artists that I love and book them in here for a couple nights and then bring in my engineers, record it, and just sell that as a, you know, like, here's our our record, you know, live jazz, you know, because that's really the stuff we love anyway. And, you know, in the history, those are the records that we love the most anyway. So that's kind of exciting. And, again, I'm going to try to just kind of stick to almost like almost all digital format if I can, not really try to worry about distributing CDs as much as trying to get the music out there through digital distribution. and You know, there's not much more you can do than that these days. I mean, there's a worldwide audience for it. We just have to reach those people somehow. So that's why you know interviews like this are important and everything we can do to just uh, promote the club. Well, and that is,
0: in fact, part of the key, too, because there is a worldwide audience. I mean, in as much as the, the scene may have changed here in New York and many other countries, I lived in Japan for a lot of years, and, I mean, they buy more jazz CDs there than any place else on the planet Earth. There are a lot of people, like you talked about, the German kids at 4 in the morning. Mm-hmm. So it seems like if you're going to be able to take what happens in this little room you know, in the heart of the city and send it to people all over the world that's an amazing thing. I mean, yeah. well, folks don't a, have access to that. That's places. our
1: that's our goal. That's why I took the time that I did to develop the site. Um, I don't think there's any other way around it. You know, we have to get the information out there. I mean, I, you know, I can't tell you how many nights, I, I mean, I'm here nearly every night of the week. And like I said, we go till four in the morning every night. So I, my life is mostly at night, but I'll be down here on a Wednesday night at a.m., and there'll be, you know, Roy Hargrove and Joe Magnarelli and Anthony Wansi all playing, you know, and there'll be maybe five or six people in the audience, and and I'm saying, like, look at this. This is incredible, you know. But it is now, at least documented. The audio is documented, and and it's being transmitted, so hopefully, you know, maybe it's just throwing a, a message in a bottle into the ocean, but we're trying to at least say, hey, there's something happening down here in this you know, New York City's not completely dead yet. You know, let us you know, let us not bury New York yet. What's it, Monty Python? I'm not dead yet. <laughs> that's right. You know? But, uh, yeah, so that's kind of where we're at. And just trying to keep it going, you know? I mean, uh, without the indefatigable spirit of Mitchell Borden, I don't think we would be able to really get this thing going. He just keeps keeps pumping it out. I keep asking him, Mitch, you feel okay? You happy? You know, I, I'm so scared that he's going to one day just say, I'm out of here, and then, then God knows what I'm going to have to do. Be, you know? <laughs>
0: Well, my guest is Spike Wilner. He's a pianist and also one of the co-proprietors of Smalls. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. I appreciate it. Thanks. All right. That's Spike Wilner from Smalls in New York City. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available for free at TheJazzSession.com and in iTunes. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. You'll find them online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the Jazz Sessions logo. If you're interested in reading some of my poetry, you'll find it at jasoncrane.org store. That's where you can get my new book, Unexpected Sunlight, which came out in April on Foothills Publishing. Please go out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. loving everybody bye bye,
1: bye.